Well, good morning, everyone. Great to, great to see you in the building. I said to the 7.45, so it's very... I've been here every, well, pretty much every week in this building, and along with about three other people. So Garth and Graham and Sue are all on the desk. We've seen each other regularly, but to, the pews have been empty. So this is, su- this is such a joy, actually. I, um, I'm, I think a lot of ministers are like me. They lay awake at night last night thinking, will anyone come back? <laughs> You came back! <laughs> Fantastic. Good on you for coming back. Good on you for uh, going, doing the hard yards over the last four months. Uh, we're very thankful and encouraged by just the perseverance of God's people. And we can, I just feel like we have things to learn, don't we, over this? We've learned to treasure this time more as a result of these seasons. And so I do treasure your presence. Uh, Well, something's never changed, do they? Uh, yeah, so it's great to have you here. Look, we're going we're gonna to do what we do every time we meet. We've met online doing this. We're going to do it now as we meet together. We're going to reflect on God's word. Let me pray before we do that. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for your word, and we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you'd apply to our hearts and minds this morning, uh, pointing us to the Lord Jesus and making us more like him. And we pray this... In his name. Amen. Well, uh, if you're in the building, and I don't take it for granted that everyone's been following the series over the last couple of weeks, but we're in the book of Galatians. If you're watching online, welcome. We're going to continue our series looking at this, this letter written by the Apostle Paul, about 48 AD, where he really has our pains to correct what he sees are errors that have crept into the life of this church in Galatia. Uh, he's, he's desperate to put them back on course, so to speak. And we've seen this desperation through the course of the letter. We pick it up again in this morning's letter, uh, morning's extract of the letter. But as we start, that the question that Paul is answering is actually a question that we still are asking. As much as our culture is secular, we're still asking this fundamental question, which is, how am I right with God? How am I right with God? Uh, and it's not hard to find some moment where we reflect on this question, you know, the, the, it's the archetypal pearly gates moment. How will God look at my life when I come to those pearly gates on that last day? How will my life be worth something valuable at that moment? Will it be valuable? And that question is a question that we're all asking. I mean, you may not have come to church with that question buzzing away. I suspect most of us didn't. We're either too busy getting the family together or we're just trying to remember the routine of a Sunday morning. But as we sit here, this is a question that in the darker moments, in the lonely moments, in the desperate moments, in the moments where we're confronted by the death of someone we love, we are asking this question. What will it be like when I meet the Lord? How will I know that I'm right with him? And it's this question, actually, this simple question, which is, meets a simple answer in Paul's letter. Uh, Paul opens chapter 3 with a very clear distinction, two different paths, two very clear paths, and he says one path results in an affirmative answer at this moment, and the other doesn't. And he, he, he summarises these paths with two different responses. In verse 2, we see this. He says, uh, 
He says, did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? And he'll say it again in verse 5. Does God give you his Spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? He repeats this little phrase. By works of the law or by believing what you heard? And by doing it, he articulates two different, two different ways of finding assurance on the last day. One, by the labours of your hand, by the work that you do, by your efforts. And two, the other, the opposite, or the stark opposite, by simply believing what you heard. And Paul makes this, this very clear. He repeats this idea of believing, not just believing an idea, but believing something that's been heard, a message. And Paul's point is that Christianity's unique, unique contribution to the question of whether or not we'll be right before the Lord on the last day is this. It comes from whether you've believed what you've heard, whether you've believed the gospel, as Paul's been talking about in the first two chapters of Galatians. Do you believe it? Have you accepted it? In fact, he's simplifying the, question, the answer to the question. He says it's simply this. By believing the message, you are saved. What is the message? Well, in chapter 1, he says Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. In 1 Corinthians, Paul will summarize the gospel as Christ crucified. In other words, he says the gospel is this. The cross of Christ is both necessary and sufficient for your salvation. That's the message he's preached to them. That's what he'd summarize the gospel as, that in the cross of Jesus Christ... Everything that is necessary and sufficient for your salvation, for you to be redeemed, for your life to be worthy on that last day is found at the cross of Christ. And his question, his challenge is, do you believe what you've heard? Because that's essentially what the Christian faith is. Whether you believe that message. That simple, really. It's that simple. In fact, there's such a, his, his, um, his, his dichotomy between the works of the law and believing what you heard opens up actually for us the genuine difference between the Christian faith and every other religion. Every other form of spirituality has some element of the works of the law, something you must do in order to have some form of assurance on that last day. The Christian faith is fundamentally unique it is what you believe have you believed this message that the cross of christ is both necessary and sufficient for your salvation it's such a simple message actually it's such a simple answer to the most profound of questions i i wonder when you ask that question whether you can automatically rest at such a simple answer to such a complex, existentially challenging question that the cross of Christ is both necessary and sufficient for my salvation. It is all that I need when I come to that pearly gate moment, when I come before the Lord, when I have my life measured and weighed to see if it's worthwhile and valuable. The cross of Christ is all that's necessary. Now, we've been doing a series, and in the series, we've asked this question, is Christianity a genuinely joyful spirituality? I don't know whether that's your automatic inclination, but I, I often think people look at the passage that we've read today and we think, oh, this, 
This is one of those passages which should testify against a joyful spirituality because Paul is in a very polemic mood in this passage. I mean, he repeats the word foolish twice when he describes the Galatians. It feels like a heavy passage. It feels like a judgmental passage. And actually, when you think about the question of the last day and standing before the Lord, for a lot of people, Christianity is far more complex than I've just outlaid for them. For them, Christianity is about judgment. Christianity is about curses. Christianity is about God calling you foolish. And so perhaps Galatians chapter 3 is not the passage you look to to understand whether Christianity is really a spirituality of joy. I want to suggest to you, actually, the reason that you might not find Christianity a spirituality of joy is because you've actually misunderstood the central premise of the Christian faith. I think that's the problem with the Galatians, actually. They've made a a key mistake And it's that mistake, actually, that Paul's responding to. It's that mistake which draws out the word foolish from him. And what's the mistake they made? Well, they've done what you would call legalism. So in verse 3, he says this, Are you so foolish after beginning by means of the Spirit? Are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? He says, You started in the way of hearing this message, but you've now gone down the path of the works of the law by means of the flesh, by doing things with your hands. It's a, it's a kind of very visceral description of it. But it's essentially what we call legalism. Now what Paul's talking about when he talks to the Galatians is he's describing a change of mindset in this church. They had accepted Jesus. They would accept that the cross of Christ was necessary for them. They had accepted that. But over the course of time, the course of years, their understanding of the gospel has changed. And so they no longer see that the cross of Christ is not just necessary, but also sufficient, enough. They've been convinced, actually, that a whole bunch of Jewish ceremonial laws are necessary as well, that that Christ is not enough. You need Christ plus these Jewish ceremonial laws, particularly we know from the end of the letter in Galatians 6, the, the Jewish ceremonial practice of circumcision. They need to be circumcisioned circumcised to have assurance on that last day. Christ plus circumcision, so to speak. And Paul says, ah, because you've done that, you're foolish. You're foolish. You've made a mistake. We call this legalism, actually. It's a short form for saying we've brought the law back into our understanding of whether when we stand before the Lord on that last day, our life will be considered worthy or not. He says, you're foolish. It's really interesting, actually, because he doesn't just discard it. He makes a very clear argument against why this kind of legalism for the Galatians is foolish. Uh, I, I use two words. First of all, it's inconsistent. And secondly, it's incapable. Legalism is both inconsistent and incapable of doing it. And here's how he says First of all, he says it's inconsistent. It's inconsistent on two fronts. First of all, in terms of their own personal experience. So in verse 4, he says, have you experienced so much in vain? So verses 3 and 4, if you've got the passage in front of you, you'll see there's a little moment where Paul draws them back to their own personal experience of conversion. He says, when you heard, the, when you heard that message and you accepted it, you experienced the powerful transformation of the gospel where your guilt, your, 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 your sense of regret was relieved having done nothing. 
Your personal experience testifies to having experienced grace without having done anything. You didn't follow the law back then, Galatians, and you experienced grace. So why do you now think you need to bring the law back in to experience it? I think it's a very important point. You know, for Christians who, who tend to make this mistake, look back at your conversion. It testifies to the wonderful truth of the gospel that simply by hearing and believing this message, you experience grace and forgiveness. He says, it's not just inconsistent in your personal story, it's inconsistent in God's great story. And so in verse 6, he'll also say, part of a little section, verses 6 to 9, he'll say, so also Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Paul says, look at the Old Testament. Now we might think, what? If you look at the Old Testament, doesn't that actually reinforce legalism? Because isn't the Old Testament filled with laws? But Paul takes us back to the start of the Old Testament story and to Abraham. He's quoting directly here in verse 6 from Genesis chapter 15, where God comes to Abraham and he promises this old man with a barren wife that he will have descendants numbering the stars. And Abraham believes him. And the writer of Genesis says, God credited to him as righteousness. Now, the thing that's really interesting is Abraham was not asked to perform circumcision at this point. That didn't exist in the story. But even before circumcision enters, God credits it to him as righteousness. So Paul says, you are bringing in this law which was not necessary even for Abraham to believe in order to be considered worthy and righteous before the Lord. He just believed it. He heard it and he believed what God had to say. He believed God. He believed that God was truth, truthful and trustworthy. And so Paul says... If you are to import some kind of legalism, some kind of ceremonial law into your understanding of your own assurance, whether you'll be right before the Lord, then that is inconsistent, actually, with everything that the Old Testament is fundamentally teaching. But he says it's also incapable. The law is incapable of saving you. The way of the flesh, of works, is incapable of bringing you the assurance that you want of actually convincing you that your life is, is worthwhile. And so in verse 10, he'll say, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. As it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Paul's point is, the law is incapable of saving you because even one mistake will cancel you out. Even one mistake. That's all it takes that's all it takes. And you know, as we reflect on it, and Jesus really brings this home in the Sermon on the Mount, what we start to see is that you can actually do, even if you were actually capable of doing everything that the law asked, every single little command of the Old Testament law, when God looked at your heart, you would not fulfill the first law, which is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Because actually the thing that you would love most is virtue itself, not the Lord. See, the really challenging thing about the law is that, first of all, it's, it's near impossible to fulfill every component of the law. But even if you could, think of the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus and says, I've fulfilled everything. But then he can't follow Jesus in Mark, Mark 10, right? He can't follow him. Why? 
because he actually loves his virtue more than he loves the Lord. See, the great challenge of the law is that you are incapable of doing everything at us. And so Paul says to the Galatians, how foolish you are. There's a story of Charles Blondin. You've probably heard of him. He's the guy who um, used to walk across Niagara Falls on the tightrope back in the day. I don't think anyone was alive back then. <laughs> but uh, he did all these kind of tricks. He, he would like set up a stool and have dinner on the, on the tightrope in the middle of it, right? He would roll a wheelbarrow up and down. He even would take volunteers on his back across Niagara Falls. Now, even as I look at that, I think, who would volunteer for that? Someone who had extreme trust in this guy, right? Always a fool. But more so, imagine if that volunteer goes halfway across the tightrope. And then he says to Blondin, hey, Chuck, I'm good, mate. I'm going to take it from here. And he hops off. He puts one foot down on that tightrope. And it just starts to shake. I don't even feel the story in for you, do I? You fool, says Paul to the Galatians. See, because the moment you bring works into it, you have to leave the gospel behind. You have to leave the gospel behind. It's like getting off the back of the guy who can actually walk you across and saying, I'll do it myself. And, you know, the very anxiety that that idea elicits in our hearts is, the great, is a symbol of the greater anxiety that when we embark on the works of the flesh, when we embark on legalism, when we embark on moralism, we feel ourselves because we are constantly measuring ourselves against a standard we cannot pass. And we are constantly weighed down by our failure. We are constantly reminded that we are fools, as Paul would say. Our own hearts testify to the words that Paul is saying. Christianity, a spirituality of joy, it's hard to see, isn't it? It certainly is hard to see if Christianity is a spirituality of the works of the flesh, of moralism, of legalism of justifying ourselves, of hoping to stand before the Lord on the last day on the basis of our works and our efforts. And here's the real challenge. This is a word not just to the Galatians. Actually, by virtue of the very cultural air that you breathe, the families that you've been brought up in, the experiences that you've experienced, the worldview that you've, you've, you've absorbed without realising it, you and I are just at risk of making this constant mistake. Justine Toe, who works for Centre Public Christianity, wrote this great little book called The Achievement Addiction. I feel like I should buy it for all of us because if you live in Sydney uh, and you're educated, you probably suffer from the achievement addiction. I certainly was challenged by the whole time. You're constantly looking for your next achievement, right? Here's what she says. For everyone gets assigned a market value depending on our abilities, experience and intelligence. This is true, isn't it? It's true. And from this perspective, the human is basically a bundle of achievement or a walking, talking resume. Now, you, you might not want to think about yourself like that. But you have a sense that other people think of you like that, if nothing else, don't they? And whether you like it or not, there are moments when you think of other people like that as well. And see, the real challenge of that, I mean, there's lots of sociological challenges that come with a culture that's based like that. But the great spiritual danger of that is that you will believe that ultimately 
That's how God treats you too. And so you will look at your efforts, you will look at your labours, and you will ask yourself questions like, have I chosen the right job? Is God happy with the work I do? Is he happy with the kind of parenting I do? Is he happy with the kind of church member I am? And you'll ask those in an existential way which will, which will eat away at your assurance when you stand before the Lord on the last day. Because, because you will start to embark on a spirituality that is characterised by the works of the law and ultimately is not joyful at all. Is not joyful at all. But I want to call you back to what Paul is saying, the simplicity of the gospel, which is just this. Have you believed what you have heard? Because if you have, if you have believed that Christ is crucified, you find in it the gold at the end of the rainbow. You find in it the joy of the Christian faith. Now, some of you might say, Christ crucified. Well, that doesn't do anything for me. Well, I want to challenge you because Christ crucified is not a statement simply of a historical moment when a man was nailed to a human, to a Roman instrument of torture. Christ crucified is a statement about God's treatment offer to treat you. It's a statement about God's offer to treat you. So how do you understand that? How do you characterize that? Well, if you go away with nothing else from this first morning back, go away with what Paul says in verse 13. Here's what he says. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. That's what it means to say Christ crucified. See, Christ crucified is not just that Christ died on a cross. It's that Christ did it for us. And what's more, it's not just that Christ, by doing that, bore our sin. I mean, that's obviously true. You see the word that Paul uses? He said, by becoming a curse, or in 2 Corinthians 5.21, by becoming sin for us. I think he uses that word very importantly. Maybe you've heard the analogy that the, the cross is a bit like the judge who steps down from his, you know, from his judgment seat and pays the debt for the criminal who can't pay it themselves, right? And there's lots of truth in that. that that's, there's, there's lots of legitimacy about that analogy. But actually, you might come away from that thinking, well, the judge is wealthy and he paid it out of his savings and you know, he'll probably earn that back and so it didn't really cost. But the gospel is all about the personal cost to the Lord Jesus, he doesn't just bear our sin, he becomes our sin. I've told you the story of um, Jerry Conlon, which is captured in the movie In the Name of the Father. Do you remember it? It's a story of four Irish, young Irish guys and girls who, you know, they're, they're lawbreakers, they're rebels, they go across to London to just kind of raise havoc, right? I mean, misdemeanor stuff, they steal something from a homeless guy. Anyway, a bomb goes off in a Guildford pub and they get arrested for it. It gets put on them, even though they had nothing to do with it. They get thrown in jail. Now, Jerry Conlon, who's the head of the Irish Four, he, his father is back in Ireland. He's been, he's been pulling his hair out about his son his whole life, and now his son's ended up in jail in England. So he goes across to England to free him, except he also gets thrown into jail. He's completely innocent, but he gets thrown into jail, he gets fingered for the case, and eventually he dies in jail. 
He dies in jail. And it, it is his death. Certainly the movie writers use his death as the transformative moment in Jerry's life. Because at that moment, he sees everything that his father became for him. And he realises that his life must change. Everything that his father became for him. In the gospel, Jesus Christ becomes a curse. So when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Those are not just words. They are his very experience. And he becomes a curse for us. So that we might not have to endure that curse at all. And I tell you, that's the gospel. That's what it means to say Christ crucified. That Jesus became a curse for me. But you see, to the extent you start to believe that truth, it's, it's going to go back and decouple your labours from your assurance. It's going to decouple your works from your sense of safety and certainty before the Lord. Because it, it's first of all, it's going to prove the worthlessness of it. How wretched am I that Christ must become a curse for me? As if my, my job or my parenting or my church membership or my genuine general virtue might in some way overcome such curse. As if it could wash it away. It'll decouple it, you see. But it also will re, it'll, it'll set you on a new course because the wonder of the gospel is not just that Christ must become a curse, but that Christ willingly becomes a curse for us. So that we might receive the blessings, Paul says, of Abraham. So that we might receive the blessing of Abraham, his Holy Spirit, so that God himself might dwell in our hearts and set us on a new track. Christ willingly becomes the curse. And so the more we believe the gospel, it actually just re-centers our thinking about our virtue. It doesn't get rid of it. It just frees us from the anxiety that's often associated with God loves me, he has redeemed me because of Christ. He has made me worthy on that last day. I have nothing to fear. And I, I tell you, that's why Christianity is a spirituality of joy. Because the gospel is freedom given to us. Freedom given to us through Christ. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the extraordinary news of the gospel. Simple clear, astounding. Help us to hear your word and believe it. Help us to let go of that tendency to want to qualify ourselves and so actually enslave ourselves to our constant failures and successes. Rather, help us to find freedom and joy in the work of Christ for us who redeemed us by becoming a curse for us. Would you make the cross a larger, more definitive, more true understanding of ourselves and you this coming week as we meditate upon it? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.